humble for being here with us during this Christmas season. Uh, it just adds to the season. Amen. I love to hear that sound. I also want to thank Stephen Susie Burwell for uh, filling in for Cheryl and I last week. Uh, we got to uh, take a wonderful little vacation uh, down in Florida. Yeah, Steve, why don't you just stand up, you and Susie, turn around, take a bow, Rudolph. Come on, stand up. Come on. You wore that thing. I got to at least show you off. Come on, stand up. Hey! <laughs> I told our visitors up on the front row that we're not all this crazy normally. We're pretty much this crazy, but not quite this crazy. But I told Steve this morning I did turn on the air conditioner for him. And I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but some of you are wearing kind of some heavier garments today. And it's getting a little warm. So just to put your mind at ease, I do have the air conditioner on. We've got the fans going. So I think you'll survive. Amen? Uh, it's just hard to believe that just a few days ago, Cheryl and I were walking on the beaches of Florida, wading out into the beautiful blue ocean. It was amazing, about 80 degrees every day, sun was shining every day, it rained on us once, but we had a wonderful vacation. But it's really hard to believe also that our Christmas services, uh, Christmas kind of sneaks up on you, amen? Our Christmas services are going to be coming in just a couple of weeks. And I don't know about you guys, but for the past several weeks, we've had playing on a round-the-clock loop on our television set old classic Christmas movies. Anybody noticed that yet? It's a Wonderful Life, Elf, a Christmas Story, and my favorite, of course, that really captures the essence of Christmas, Christmas Vacation. Amen? <laughs> Every time I watch that movie, I see something new. I don't know about you, but... You're going to find something new in that movie. It's just hilarious. Anyway, two weeks ago, I began the Christmas series called The Family Tree of Jesus. And what we said that is at this time of year, the Christmas tree is always a rig, real big deal. I mean, it's kind of the centerpiece of our decorations. I love looking at a Christmas tree. I love, Some of you look like Christmas trees today. <laughs> I love looking at Christmas trees. I love the way they're lit up, the way they're decorated. Uh, but we talked about how last week, or the first week we started the series, how Matthew, when he decides to tell the Christmas story in the Gospel of Matthew, he starts out looking at another type of tree. It's actually the family tree of Jesus, his genealogy. I would say when it comes to the Christmas story, most of us are a whole lot more familiar with Luke's writing. Amen? I mean, Luke probably does the best job of all with Christmas. Usually when you think of Christmas, you go to Luke's Gospel where he's bringing in the nativity scenes, the shepherds, the angels, all of that beautiful picture he paints. Luke does Christmas really well. So I would say Luke's is the Christmas party you really want to go to. Amen? Think about it. Not so much with Matthew. I mean, Matthew, when he decides to tell the Christmas story, he details Jesus' family tree by giving us this long and broad list of hard-to-pronounce names that don't really sound all that interesting. And if you're like me, anytime you're reading your word, reading the Bible, you come to Matthew chapter 1, you see that long list of intimidating names, all of a sudden you think, I'll just skip on by this. There's probably not a whole lot that I need in here. Definitely nothing that I'm going to put on a coffee mug or a t-shirt, nothing motivational in here. So you just uh, skip right on past it. So let me just say this uh, about if you don't know me, and you want to get to know me. Say we decide to go out, sit down for a cup of coffee, get to know each other. You start asking me some typical questions of, uh, that anyone would ask to get to know another person. Uh, where are you from? What do you like to do? And I interrupt you. 
and uh, I say something like, uh, well, let me just interrupt you and stop you here. I want to tell you that my great-grandparents were Henry and Josie. They married, they got together, and they had a son, begat a son by the name of Walter. Walter walked with a limp. He grew up. He met a woman by the name of Orabel. Orabel and him got together, got married. They begat a son by the name of William. William grew up. He begat a son. He met a lady named Mary. He begat a son by the name of Dwayne. That's actually my uh, Cliff Notes version of my family tree. Amen? I brought that all up to say if I would just give you that list of names, you wouldn't know me any better than you already did. In fact, you might start questioning whether you want to know me at all, right? <laughs> I mean, think about Matthew and what he's doing and what he's writing, because Matthew is like, let me tell you about this Messiah that's been prophesied about to come for hundreds and hundreds of years. Let me tell you about him. And all of a sudden we go, yeah, I'm in for that. Tell me all about him. And then he just gives us this long list of names. It'd be a little confusing. And you probably wouldn't know the whole situation any better than you did before that list of names. Anyway, with that said, how many of you, and I know you have, have ever filled out a resume? Anybody ever made a resume? Maybe you're applying for a new job. You put on there your work skills, your work experience, uh, uh, your objectives and your goals. Well, I was reading one time an actual list of resumes that were filled out. And some of the things that they put on these resumes, I'm just saying they probably shouldn't have put on those resumes. And I've got a few of them here. They're kind of funny. I want you to listen to them. One person said that they were interested in the position because they wanted to keep their parole officer happy. <laughs> I don't think that's the best way to approach a resume. Another guy, wrote th another guy wrote this on his resume, that he worked very hard to maintain a GPA of 2.0. I think he could have left that off. Another person, and this is really good, another person wrote on their resume, they said, I am fluent in multiple foreign accents. <laughs> I don't know what good that would do. Under skills, one person wrote this, I have cat-like reflexes. Now you see me, meow you don't. <laughs> one guy wrote that he was an underwater ceramics and glass cleaner for a multi-million dollar company, which meant he was a dishwasher at Chili's. One guy applying for a marketing position who had worked in the supermarket listed one of his responsibilities as he cut the cheese. <laughs> I said all that to say there's just some things that when you're filling out a resume, you probably shouldn't put on your resume. Amen? And it seems like if you're filling out and doing the genealogy of Jesus Christ the Messiah, there might be some names that you might want to leave off of that list as well. Last week I said it wasn't surprising that Matthew, when he's introducing Jesus, started out with this long list uh, of names, um, the genealogy of Jesus, because after all, he was Jewish, and in that day, it, the genealogy was everything. Genealogy was everything. It was your birth certificate, it was your social security card, your driver's license, it was your background check all rolled into one, it was actually your identity and your credibility, it was a really big deal. What I'm saying is no surprise that Matthew starts out as he tells us who Jesus is by giving us this long list of names. But what is very surprising are some of the names that he incl includes on this list that I would say most of us would leave off. But Matthew doesn't leave out anybody. He doesn't eliminate anybody. He just lays it out there, warts and all, good, bad, and the ugly. He includes everyone in Jesus' family tree. 
we can relate to this, he included all the cousin Eddies in his family. Amen? All the cousin Eddies. The people who you would think that you probably shouldn't include because they might just discredit the Messiah. Well, Matthew puts them in there. Matthew includes them all. And back in that day, there were typically three groups of people that would be left off of a Jewish genealogy. I mentioned them a little bit the first week. Uh, Number one, they wouldn't list women on genealogies. They just didn't. They also wouldn't list foreigners or outsiders, those people that didn't come from a Jewish line. They also wouldn't list notorious sinners, people that had done some really bad things because they might just discredit whoever it was you were trying to lift up. And this time, Matthew's actually lifting up Jesus Christ. But think about Matthew. He includes all three of these groups of people multiple times, even in the first six verses of the book of Matthew. So last week, we talked about the limbs that are on Jesus' family tree. We talked about the limb of Jacob. Uh, Jacob, some of you may have heard about him. He was a manipulator from his birth. He was a conniver. He tried to control circumstances. He tried to control people in his life. So today, the character that we're going to look at is actually really close to Jacob. He's actually one of Jacob's sons. But I want to read uh, the genealogy again. I'm not going to read the whole genealogy. The first verse of Matthew, as we get started, it says, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. So if you don't realize this, Matthew is setting this whole thing up to prove that Jesus could very well be the Messiah because of his relationship to David. He goes on and said he's also the son of Abraham. This is absolutely proving that Jesus was Jewish because anybody that would hear this and hear that he's the son of David, also the son of Abraham, would know for sure that he's from a Jewish lineage. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Let me go back to Judah, because that's the guy I want to focus on today. Now, if I ask you to turn to your neighbor and tell them all you know about this character named Judah, I'm just guessing it's going to be a pretty short conversation. Amen? Some of you may have never heard of Judah before, don't know anything at all about him, but everyone knows about his famous, famous brother, the guy that had the coat of many colors. Do you remember him? I heard, yeah, I heard somebody say it. His name is Joseph. So it really makes me wonder, when it comes to the genealogy that Matthew's doing on Christ in the first chapter of Matthew, why he includes Judah's name in the genealogy and not Joseph. Why would he do that? Well, if you remember, Judah had 11 brothers. There were 12 brothers in all. They were all the sons of Jacob. Uh, they would eventually become the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Jacob had a favorite son. The father had a favorite son. Can you guess who that might be? Joseph. The other brothers hated Joseph because of the favoritism, the attention shown by their father toward Joseph. He's the only one that got this beautiful coat of many colors. So I want to pick up his story in Genesis chapter 37, verse 23. It says, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe of many colors, that ornate robe that he was wearing, And they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. So they can't stand their brother. They rip his coat of many colors off of him, and they throw him in this dried-up cistern. Look what they do next, verse 25. As they sat down to eat their meal. Think about this. These guys have just thrown their brother in a well, left him to die, and one of them looks up and says, Hey, let's go grab some lunch. We're going to go over to Monocles? You want to go to the Pizza Hut, Subway, whatever? I don't know. 
But then it says, then they look up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. So they were having lunch and they look up and they see these traders coming by with all of their goods on their way to Egypt. And look what great idea Judah comes up with. Verse 26. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. I'm thinking, oh, how sweet of Judah. Amen. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So this guy that Matthew names in the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus, Judah, he's basically there saying, hey, let's not kill him. Let's just gain from his pain. Let's not kill him. Let's just profit from his pain. Most of you, or many of you know probably the rest of the story. Joseph is pulled out of that well. They sell him off to these slave traders. He's taken to Egypt, sold into Egyptian slavery. And things go really bad for Joseph for a time. But then God starts manipulating things and changing things and turning things around for the good. But in the meantime, do you know what these brothers, these ornery brothers do? They take that coat of many colors and they soak it in animal's blood, and they go back to their father Jacob, and they say, Dad, we are so sorry to tell you this heartbreaking news, but your son Joseph has been killed by wild animals. He's been devoured because this is all that we found of his coat, is his coat. Think about Jacob and his wife. Think about them from that day on grieving and mourning over their supposed death of their son Joseph. It would have been horrible. But what's worse is all this time, all 11 of those brothers know what really happened and don't say a word. They keep the secret. Later in Scripture, there's a lot said about uh, Joseph's story. But the other brother, Judah, there's only one chapter, um, and it's bizarre. And I'll just say that it's not a story you would ever associate with the Christmas story, but Matthew kind of throws it in here. So I'm going to just kind of paraphrase it for sake of time. You can go back and read it later on your own. It's found in the book of Genesis. It's an amazing story. But let me start with Genesis 38, verse 1. It says, At that time Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man Adullam, with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her. I want to stop right here because he married her. They had three sons. The names of those sons were Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Uh, Judah finds a wife for his oldest son, Ur. Her name is Tamar. They get married, and the Bible says that almost right away, Ur does evil in the sight of the Lord, and God takes him out. We don't know exactly what it was. When I say take him out, God killed him. He died. We don't know what it was, but God said it's wicked enough that I'm taking you out of here. If you don't know the customs back in that day, when your husband would die and leave you widowed, you would marry the next brother in line. That's just their tradition, what they would do. So Judah goes to the next brother, Onan, and he says, I want you to marry your brother's sister, uh, wife. I want you to marry your uh, brother's uh, uh, widow, your sister-in-law, Tamar, and I want you to have children with her so that she can be provided for. So Onan doesn't want to have children with Tamar. I don't know what the deal was there. And he makes sure that he doesn't. That's a sermon in itself. And because he doesn't fulfill that obligation to Tamar, it's seen as evil in the sight of the Lord also, and he takes Onan out. I told you this was a little bit crazy, a crazy story, and it is. Judah's down to one son now. His name is Shelah. 
And uh, researching this, he was only about 14 years old at the time. His hormones are probably raging and going crazy. He thinks, I'm getting married. I'm next in line. Gosh, let's go for this thing. Let's do it. Well, Judah has another idea. Uh, it says in verse 11, Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. Here's the thing. Judah's definitely not a man of good character. You can't trust him. I mean, think about what he suggested and did to his brother Joseph. And he definitely has no intention of fulfilling his obligation and his promise to Tamar. A matter of fact, he forgets about her really quickly. Verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. So Judah's wife passes away. The Bible says he mourns for a season, a time. And then he decides, uh, after his grieving, he's going to go down to a city called Timnah. He's going to go down and check out some herds that are grazing in that area that he owns. Um, so the thing about this whole thing is Tamar has been living in that city called Timnah, and word gets around that her father-in-law is coming to that town. Uh, so she kind of takes matters into her own hands because she knows that Judah is not going to keep his promise and he's forgotten all about her and verse 14 actually verifies that he forgot her look what it says for she saw that though Shelah had now grown up she had not been given to him as a wife so see she finds herself in a very desperate situation where she was widowed at an early age didn't have any children and back in that day this was a desperate situation you wanted to have children in that day because one thing, a big thing about not having children is you didn't receive the priestly or the Levitical blessing. You were left out of that. You wanted to have children to carry on your family line. You wanted to have children because if you didn't have children, you would lose some rights uh, as a citizen of that culture. Anyway, I know all that's hard for us to get our minds around, but just think of it this way. Tamar felt like she was in a very desperate situation, and desperate times call for desperate measures. And she also knows her father-in-law's weaknesses. So get this, what she does next. So she takes off her widow's clothing, and she gets dressed up like a prostitute. I don't know if she had those clothes in the back of her closet. I don't know where she got them. But she dresses up like a prostitute, puts a veil over her face to conceal her identity. She goes out to the city gate and waits for her father-in-law to drop by, and she sees him coming. And when he gets there, he sees this prostitute at the gate, and he starts bartering for her services. Yeah, not knowing it's his daughter-in-law in disguise. He starts bartering for her services, and they finally barter through the whole thing, and they come up with, well, the going rate is a goat, okay, a goat. Well, the bad thing is he doesn't have a goat. He's got a lot of goats at home, but he doesn't have a goat with him, so he makes her a promise, I'll just basically give you an IOU, I'll give you a goat later. I know it's a bizarre story, but bear with me. Verse 18, Judah said, what pledge should I give you? Uh, by now, she's kind of caught on to Judah and his ways. She knows that he's not going to come through with his guarantee unless she gets some collateral. Verse 18, he said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So you may not realize what she's asking for, but she's asking for his signet ring. She's asking for the seal of his identity. Um, she's also asking for his staff. And both of the, these things would definitely identify who Judah was. 
So he gives her these things to guarantee that he's going to bring her a goat one of these days. And let me tell you, when he goes home, he keeps his promise. He sends a servant back with a goat. The only problem is when the servant enters the city, he can't find the prostitute because by now Tamar has taken off the veil, taken off the prostitute clothes, and and she uh, has put her widow's clothes back on. They can't find the prostitute, so I'm just guessing Judah's breathing a sigh of relief because he's thinking, whew, that secret's kept forever. Well, not so much. Look what happens. Tamar gets pregnant. She's starting to show. Verse 24 says, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah gets all self-righteous. He gets all puffed up and religious on her, and he says, bring her out, and we'll have her burned to death. Let me ask you, have you ever ran across a certain type of person, probably a religious, self-righteous type of person, that's always out there condemning everyone else's sins, but they never admit that they have any? Let me tell you, if you dug a little deeper and looked a little closer, they've got a closet full of sins like we all do. Amen? So Judah arranges for a day that Tamar's to come to be burned alive. Think about Judah. He conceals his own horrible sins, but he punishes her with the most harshest punishment of all. But on that day when the fire is burning and Tamar uh, Tamar is coming out, she sends a message to Judah. Listen to her message. Verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. She said, and she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. So the servants take all these things back to Judah, and they say, hey, we found out who the baby daddy is. Uh, We found out he's the guy that owns these things. And I can just imagine Judah's face. Can you just see his jaw dropping open and said, oops, busted. Judah's like, change your plans, boys. Put out the fire. Everybody go home. Amen? (laughs) Judah recognizes that he is the one that's been unrighteous. Judah recognizes that he's the one that has sinned. Verse 26 says, Judah recognized them, these things, and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. So basically, you break it down, Judah saying, Tamar, you're more righteous than I am because I didn't follow through on a promise that I made to you years ago. So back to Matthew chapter 1. Yeah, this is about the Christmas story. It really is. Bear with me. When we talk about the genealogy of Jesus Christ, verse 3 says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. You notice any names in that phrase? I noticed the first and the last one, Judah and Tamar. They throw a new name in here. It's their son, Perez, who is conceived between a father-in-law and a daughter-in-law. And guess what? Perez is included in the family tree and the genealogy of Jesus. Why in the world would Matthew include Perez in this Christmas story, after all, that had taken place? I really think that by listing all the cousin Eddies, the in-laws and outlaws of Jesus, we can realize that Jesus came for very imperfect, broken people. Amen? He came for the underdogs in this world. I believe he's saying out of this very messy relationship between a desperate daughter-in-law, barren daughter-in-law, and a uh, very unrighteous religious guy would come a Savior. So I think when you look at this whole story, you realize how God can take a really messed up deal. God can can take a really messed up situation And he's saying it's not the end for you. I believe he's saying this for Judah and Tamar both. It's not the end for you. 
He, he, I believe he's saying, I can redeem this. Watch what I can do with this messy situation. Do you realize that God wants to deal with our messy situations in our life? God wants to redeem our messy situations in our life. And every one of us, no matter who we are, we have several. We have messy situations in our life. So God took their situation. He's going to redeem it. I'm just wondering here today how many of you have a messed up situation in your life right now. Maybe it has to do with your marriage. Maybe it has to do with your family, your kids, maybe at work. And when I say messy situation, I'm talking about a situation that's in your face all day long, 24-7. Maybe it's only you and God that know about it, but it's there. Uh, You'd rather it not be there, and you're doing everything to get uh, rid of it that you can. But you don't want to talk about it. You definitely don't want to put it on Facebook and talk about it, amen? Because you're afraid of what people might actually say if they really saw who you were and what has happened in your life. But it's every day right in your face. Consuming your thoughts. How many of you have ever thought, wow, if somebody so-and-so knew who I really was and what I've really done, they'd never want to be my friend. Let me tell you, we've all been there, done that. Amen? We've all done things that we would think no one would ever accept us for who we are. It's embarrassing. It's messy. And many times it's not our fault at all. It wasn't something you deserved. But if that's your case, let me tell you, God's a whole lot closer than you think he is. God's not looking at you today as damaged goods at all. God's not ashamed of you. And let me tell you this for sure. I believe that's the whole reason or the biggest part of the reason that God puts this whole story in his word about Tamar and her faults, her failures. Well, the story doesn't end there. It continues on 20 years later. Judah is still trying to keep the secret of him trying to get rid of his brother Joseph. And think about Joseph. Think, he's been in Egypt for 20 years now. He left as a teenager, was sold off into slavery as a teenager. 20 years later, God has actually promoted him, actually Pharaoh promoted him with God's help, to the second in control over the whole land of Egypt. He's a very powerful man. You might say he's the prime minister of Egypt. And at the same time, if you know the story, there was a horrible famine that had hit that whole section of the world. But because of Joseph and the wisdom, the insight that God had given Joseph, no one else has food, but Egypt has food. And Joseph is in charge of distributing that food. Now Joseph and Judah's father, Jacob, he tells his sons to load up your camels, go to Egypt because we don't have any food, and see if you can buy some grain from from the prime minister. So they do. They load up their camels. They all take off except their youngest brother, Benjamin. They leave him at home. But when they get to Egypt, Joseph recognizes them right off. They don't recognize him. He left when he was just a teenager, but he sure recognizes them. Joseph puts them through some hoops, puts them through some tests, and finally says, hey, wait a minute, I will give you some grain if you'll just go back and get your youngest brother, Benjamin, Because if you know the story, Benjamin was near and dear to the heart of Joseph. It's really an incredible story. I just ask that you'd read it on your own sometime. But finally, they go back, they get Benjamin, they come back, and they get all alone in a room with Joseph. He makes sure no one else is there. They don't recognize him. They don't know who he is, but he decides, I'm going to reveal myself to my brothers. Genesis 43, verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer because they were terrified at his presence. (laughs) 
Can you imagine what's going through Judah's mind about now? Can you imagine him standing before the second most powerful man in Egypt, probably the second most powerful man in the world, and he's thinking, oops, I threw this guy in a well. Oops, I sold this guy into slavery. I'm just saying this could have very well been big payback time for Joseph. He's had 20 years to think of what he could do to his brothers if he ever ran across them again. And now they're right before him, shaking in their boots, waiting for the hammer to fall. The drum roll builds, and verse 5 says something that you probably wouldn't expect. Look what Joseph says in verse 5. And now, talking to his brothers that had thrown him in a well, sold him into slavery, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. He's saying God meant this for good. Oh yeah, you might have, oh you did mean it for evil, but God turned it around and used it for good. He's saying he sent me ahead of you guys, not only to save you and your families, but to save thousands of lives. So Joseph right there is saying, I forgive you. I'm going to forgive you guys. I'm going to protect you guys. You came to the right place. You may not realize it, but I believe with all of my heart that Joseph is one of the best pictures of Christ that we see in the Old Testament. And Matthew doesn't even mention Joseph in his Jesus' family tree, but he mentions Judah. Doesn't mention Joseph, this great guy. He mentions Judah, this scoundrel. And there's Judah on his face, busted and guilty. At that moment, guess what? I believe Judah's a picture of me. I believe Judah's a picture of you. I believe he's a picture of humanity. It's a picture of a person who deserved one thing and got another. It's a person who deserved death but got life. It's a person who deserved punishment and got grace. It's really the Christmas story. It's the Christmas story. Jesus came for those who don't deserve grace. Jesus came into this world to save. Amen? That was his purpose. He came into this world to save that which was lost, and it's not based on anything you could ever do or I could ever do. It's 100% based on what he's already done. You realize this morning you can't earn God's love and his acceptance no matter how hard you would work for it because he bought it with a price 2,000 years ago. His son dying on a cross. Matthew knows this, and he knows Jesus loves us even when others don't. Even when mom and dad get so disappointed in you that they write you off. Even when a friend will no longer have anything to do with you, they write you off. Even when that spouse has long given up on believing the promises that you keep making that you're going to change one of these days. When you fail to meet everyone else's expectations, even fail to meet your own expectations, When you fail to be able to love yourself, let me tell you, Jesus will never stop loving you. Jesus will never, ever stop loving you. Matthew knows that, and I really do think that's the reason he starts out with this long list of names. And as I'm trying to point out, it's a long list of very imperfect people's names. So let me say this. Before we get to the Christmas story that Luke tells about the angels, the wise men, the shepherds, and the stables... I believe Matthew in this story is telling us that God has chosen broken, messed up people. Broken, messed up people with a past and secrets. God has chosen people that no one else would choose. They would just pass on by. He's saying to those of us that have things in our life that 
we'll take to the grave. We have sins in our lives that we'll take to the grave because we don't want anyone else to know about them. Because if anyone else knew about them, it would be really bad. But I believe God is saying, I'm inviting you into this story, the Christmas story. I'm inviting you into this story of grace. You may not realize it, but you didn't choose God. He chose you. He chose you and me. He wants us to be part of Jesus' story, part of Jesus' family tree. And I'll say it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. He offers grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Amen? Every day of our life. Oh, the enemy's going to show up every day of your life and tell you you've done way too much wrong to ever receive any of those things. But God would just simply say, it's not about what you've done. It's about what I've done. It's about what God has done through His Son. I don't know if you realize it or not, but we need Him. We are desperate people without Him. We need Him. And the whole point of the Christmas story is to point out our need for a Savior. I pray if nothing else happens during this Christmas season that you'll realize your specific need for a Savior. We all need a Savior to work in our lives and to live in our lives every day. Maybe you've accepted Christ and praise God for that. You've accepted this, this Son of God that left heaven, uh, took on the sins of the world, died brutally on a cross, rose from the grave, and now ascends and sits at the right hand of the Father. You've accepted Him. But I don't know about you, but every day in my life, I find that I need Him a little bit more. I may think I'm sold out, but I can push myself a little further to get a little bit more sold out, a little bit more sold out, a little more dependent, a little more trusting, a little more in tune with our God. Through this bizarre story, and it's a crazy bizarre story, God is telling us that He came for this world. For God so loved the world. He didn't say, for God so loved just Egypt, or just Jerusalem, or just uh, North America, South America, whatever. He didn't say that. For God so loved the world. And I think when Jesus stretched out His arms, His hands upon that cross, and his, shed His blood, I'm thinking His arms couldn't have been any wider to say, I am dying for this world. I am shedding my blood so that this world could be redeemed, so that this world could be saved. That's a whole lot to be thankful for during the Christmas season. But it's a whole lot to be thankful for beyond the Christmas season. Amen? Every day of the year, we ought to be thankful for a Savior that loved me when I was unlovable, that died for me when I wasn't worth dying for, who never stopped along the way. And He could have. He could have. But he refused. Even when he's in the garden shedding those great drops of blood, he says, let this cup pass if it could pass. But then he thinks and says, no, not my will be done, but yours, Father. This is what I came for. These are who I came for. This world is what I came for. That's what a good God has done for you and me. Has given us the greatest gift that Christmas could ever bring. The greatest gift that any time could ever bring. The gift of His Son. Could you stand to your feet this morning? Could you bow your hearts in prayer? Lord, I just pray that everyone in this place would realize how much we need a Savior. I pray we would realize we need You in everything we do. Help us to see Your indescribable love for us, Father. Through the crazy story of Judah. With all of his faults and failures, all of his mess-ups, you still included him in your story. Lord, I thank you so much for sending your perfect son for imperfect people like us. 
I thank you that it doesn't matter where we've been or what we've done. You poured out your grace, your mercy, and your forgiveness through Christ. Lord, may we all receive that right now into our hearts and our minds. And may we invite you into our lives in a greater way than we've ever before. In a way that won't just stick with us during Christmas, but will stay with us our entire life. We give you the praise. We give you the glory. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Hallelujah.